morning once again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For those of you who are guests, we seek to study one book of the Bible on Sunday mornings a year. And we're in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And we begin the third and final section of this book together this morning. And this morning and next Sunday morning, we'll look at the first six verses together. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, we have some uh, folks at the back of the auditorium, some ushers that would be willing to give you a Bible to follow along with. If you don't have a Bible on a device that you're carrying, uh, if you just lift your hand up, uh, maybe you forgot it at home or left it in the car or whatnot, uh, all those things are human things that can happen. Lift your hand up high and the fellows will get you a Bible there if you need it. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Queens, New York. And he posted this on his social media yesterday. And I thought it was appropriate to read this morning. Obviously, it's in relationship to the 20th anniversary this weekend of 9-11. He said, never forget the sacrifice of those who rescued but gave their lives in the process. Never forget those who were taken from the earth because they kept their daily routine. Never forget the terrible cruelty and cowardice that humans plan against other humans. And never forget the lessons that we only learn from God through times of pain and loss. Never forget that God loves and cares for you in and through every trial. Never forget Jesus went to trial and the cross for you in order that he might be your savior and intercede for you on your behalf. So on a day of remembrance, I thought it was appropriate to remember all those things. And especially for us who claim to know Christ as our savior, to remember the ultimate sacrifice that he paid on the cross for for our sin. But for those of you who lost friends and family members, on that faithful day 20 years ago, uh, we want you to know that we do remember. And, uh, and we always will. I think remembering is certainly mentioned for a number of reasons throughout the scriptures. And to remember these things, especially that Pastor Richmond wrote, very helpful to all of us. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that this morning, um, as we do on every Lord's Day morning, which is Resurrection Sunday, the Lord's Day is honored on this day of the week because we serve a risen Savior. And we remember, Lord, Him who came face to face with death, endured the death of the cross out of obedience to his heavenly father who died our death so that we might live if we look to him as the author and finisher of our faith. We remember, Lord, that day that we turned from our sin and placed our faith in Jesus alone and not the church, not a pastor, not a priest, not a religious leader, but Jesus alone for the salvation of our souls. 
We remember, Lord, how your grace in Christ changed the way we lived. We remember the joy, Lord, of the freedom that we had from our sin. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ that there's power over sin. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ that someday we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. We're thankful, Lord, that on this day we can remember him as we worship you and all that you've done for us in him. So we are in Christ, the citizens of a better country. We remember, Lord, what your word has spoken of that country that we are citizens of, that heavenly country, that far better country than the one in which we live. And we live by faith, persevering through this land with great anticipation of dwelling forever in the other, the much better land. And as we journey through this land, Lord, that's afflicted by brokenness and sin, I pray that we would do so with the joy of our Savior. I pray that we would do so with the burden of our Savior for those in our community who need a relationship with Jesus Christ, who need to know ultimately his forgiveness, who need to know his joy, who need to know his peace. Help them, Lord, to see that in us, see him in us. And by the help of your spirit, be drawn unto you in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have again to sit and to listen to your word taught and proclaimed. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would take personal responsibility, starting with me, to obey what we hear uh, this morning. That we, being not just faithful hearers, but doers of the word, would know what it means to be blessed in our deed. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's read these first six verses that we'll study the next two weeks together. Now I, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. On September 11, 20 years ago, there was a flight leaving from the East Coast to travel to Denver. Mid-flight, 
The pilot, like hundreds of others that morning, was instructed to land at the nearest and safest airport. There had been a national emergency that had occurred. The flight landed in Omaha, Nebraska. There was one man on the flight with some military experience. He knew the magnitude of what was happening, and it had to be immense. He jumped into military leadership mode. After they landed and disembarked and picked up their luggage, he rushed to the nearest rental car counter before they could close them and rented the largest van that he possibly could find. He picked up the van, he took the van to the baggage claim pickup area. He got a piece of cardboard, he wrote on magic marker on that cardboard, going to Denver. All Denverites welcome. One by one, over a course of a couple hours, that van was filled with people headed to Denver. Certainly frightened passengers, concerned passengers, people wondering if they would ever make it home, not knowing the true nature of this national emergency. But the bold kindness of this principled former military man took action and loaded the van and safely took his passengers to their hometown. Thousands of souls across the nation on 9-11 acted with courage and bravery and there were similar virtues of their lives put on public display for all they helped to see and learn. And Paul begins this final section of this letter with a spirit-filled display of Christian virtues that God uses to protect a flock and the content of the gospel upon which his church is founded. He makes no apology for doing so. These virtues are to be owned by every spirit-filled believer for the ongoing protection of the content of the gospel and the flock of God at the local level that's been influenced by it. You'll notice, or you may have noticed, and we'll highlight these over the next two weeks, um, the number of times um, a reference to the military is made in these six verses. There certainly is a sub-theme here, a militaristic sub-theme. Some would call, some writers, a military motif. And that's very intentional here. When it comes to protecting those who want to do the right thing, but who are frightened, and doing the right thing is imminently exposed to be destroyed, something's got to be done to protect it. You know Paul's history with this church from his three letters to her to his first two visits. He's done what he had to do to protect the church and its gospel influence. And they've responded well. After Paul planted the church, she fell into internal and some self-inflicted hard times. We've reviewed those over the course of this year. He did the hard thing in writing the first two letters to them. 
Titus brought reports to him that they responded well to the second. And God's word has that effect on his people, doesn't it? Because they responded well, it told Paul that there truly was people at Corinth that were saved. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And that great gave great courage to his heart. And since they responded well, he writes this third letter with three sections confirming his heart for them. Chapters 1 through 7 is about the value of his gospel relationship with them and how important it is for their protection. Chapters 8 and 9 is all about gospel progress among the churches involved with the sharing of need to the church of Jerusalem. And now chapters 10 through 13 will be about sealing their protection as a flock from what seems to be an ever-present possibility of unbelief in the church. There are some who believe that Paul writes this third section exclusively addressing those who don't know Christ, but who are a part of a church. I hope we can hold to the reminder that Paul doesn't directly address unbelief in the majority of his writings to the church, to any church. He addresses believers. He does address those who are saved to make them aware of unbelief and its vices and practices so they can be aware and self-protected as they grow in their renewed fellowship with God. So that's what Paul does here. He closes the letter with some strong admonitions about the potential influence of unbelief. Unbelief, that enemy of the free gospel of grace, has always been present in the church. It comes in various shapes and sizes, so to speak. But the nature of it is the same. Jesus Christ for unbelief and the word of God are just never enough. He is never enough. The word of God is just never enough for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Something always has to be added to the life and person of Christ and his work or to the word of God. And that's what religion does has no problem with Jesus, has no problem with the Bible per se, but neither one is ever enough for the saving and the growing of our souls. Paul knows this. So he wants to shepherd the Corinthian flock with a growing awareness of who these folks are for their own protection and for the progress of the gospel. We've read these six verses, right? And over the next two weeks, we're going to highlight this militaristic motif so that all of us will be called to understand what a true Christian soldier is in the church that knows how to properly in position and disposition defend the content and the progress of the gospel. Are you with me? So far so good? All right. The military theme is not an unfamiliar theme used by the Apostle Paul in Scripture. As a matter of fact, as, as pastoral epistle he wrote to Timothy, was, he had set in place at 
at Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he asks him to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philemon, verses 1 and 2, as Paul writes to the house church in Philemon's house, right, there's a man listed there. His name is Archippus. And he calls Archippus a fellow soldier. You folks that know the Bible well know that Ephesians chapter 6 is all about spiritual warfare and putting on the armor of God. As a matter of fact, uh, verses 21 to 24 of that chapter highlight numerous virtues of what it means to be a Christian soldier. These texts, among many others, this military motif is, is real. And apparently, it's necessary because there has been, since the fall of man into sin, various enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the good news of how God had designed to restore sinful man back to fellowship with him. And God had an eternal plan to do that, Ephesians 1 tells us. And Satan's minions are all about distracting people who have not heard that message from it, and then even after they're influenced by it and they're born again, his goal with his partners of darkness is to distract them away from the sufficiency of Christ and his word. So, that's why this motif is used. It's worth fighting for. <laughs> Jude, right? Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's a military term. But let me tell you what he's not talking about here before we dive into the text. There's a lot of talk about the military in our country over the past six years. I'm not doing that here this morning. I do want you to know, especially for those of you who have just recently come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that when Paul uses this motif, he's speaking specifically on the grounds of spiritual battle, not physical battle. The believer's warfare with the wicked one for the protection of the gospel and its progress is waged in the spiritual realm with spiritual weapons. And we'll talk about that over the next two weeks here. And as we study the third section of this letter, I think it's certainly necessary that we qualify that, especially in light of our current culture. Nonetheless, the war against unbelief is real. The war against unbelief is necessary and therefore often unavoidable. And every Christian soldier should be properly armed. So Paul begins by teaching the faithful what the virtues are of Christian soldiering in order to protect the content and the progress of the gospel. Virtue number one, right? They're passionate. They're passionate. Now, that's going to be one word where the Greek is going to use two other words to define that. But we're going to find one particular verb here that's going to demonstrate or clarify us this passion. 
The first part of verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's the first virtue of two out of four that we'll study over the next two weeks. A Christian soldier is passionate. We will find out the second half of verse 1 through verse 3 that a Christian soldier is to be principled. He's to be principled, passionate and principled. In verse 4, we'll find out next week that he's to be proficient. Proficient. And in verses 5 and 6, we'll find out next week that he's to be prepared. He's to be ready. But first of all, we are to be passionate defenders of the faith. Paul says, now I, Paul, myself. The word now here is is a word that God uses to clearly define for us the start of the final section of this letter. That's its purpose. Many people over the years have tried to explain that this was actually another letter that Paul wrote, a fourth letter, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Uh, We're going to demonstrate over the next few weeks as we close out this letter why it is a cohesive part of the whole. And just like you might write a letter to a, dis- to a relative who's distanced from you or a friend, right? A loved one. Uh, your letter may be composed of four different topics of your realities together. But yet all one letter. And that's really what Paul's doing here. But then he says, I, Paul, myself... It's a very clear indicator, uh, not only that Paul is beginning a third and final section of this letter, but it's a very clear indicator here that he's making himself the subject of this first sentence, and he does so of the final sentence of this paragraph as well. I think it's very important to remember that, and I'll explain why. You may find it interesting three words in a row, he references his own person. Well, this is for good reason. Paul planted the church. Paul's led them through the deepest conflict any church could face. He's now gained their spiritual attention again, and he's going to take full advantage of this in the spiritual moment because he knows that unbelief still looms in the Corinthian midst. And the gospel progress is actually worth protecting. He then uses the word urge. This is a very familiar word for those of you that are familiar with your Greek New Testaments. It's the Greek word parakaleo. I think it's worth noting here for this reason. He's going to make, he's going to ask, should I say, the Corinthian believers to partner with him in this spiritual ongoing military operation. He's calling them alongside. That's what the word means. To learn from him. Hang on with me here. We would call this spiritual reproduction of sorts. 
Paul's just saved their existence by use of sending them an inspired letter. And now having garnered their confidence in God's protection, he's asking them to join him in the fight. He's asking them to come alongside and learn to protect the church for themselves. And his urging is only to ask them to follow him and we'll learn this in the next phrase, so long as he's following the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here in the next phrase that we've already read, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's passionate about something. He's urging them to know and understand that the first virtue of being a Christian soldier is defending the honor of the gospel and it's done with meekness and gentleness and not just broadly, specifically as demonstrated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us over the last few weeks have unfortunately, but fortunately, been eyewitnesses to images of American soldiers fully arrayed with battle gear and fully in the protection mode of saving little babies as they lifted those babies up in their arms in Afghanistan and they stretched every muscle in their bodies to hoist those babies safely over barbed wire and walls so that their lives can be sustained. When we see these images, our hearts are warmed with the mighty compassion of these soldiers. And in a spiritual sense, this is what Paul is saying here. God's people are to be passionate about being meek and gentle. A Christian soldier's first virtue in the battle of protecting the gospel is to be meek. And every soldier knows, and even if you've taken a concealed carry weapon class, right? In those classes, everyone knows that the use of a weapon is a what? Absolute last resort. The first goal is to save a life without the use of force. Right? Right. But that's not really the mindset of religion. Religion since the fall of man into sin has unnecessarily burned at the stake and slaughtered and caused bloodshed And that's the antithetical way in which a true Christian soldier acts first and foremost. The word meekness here, let me tell you what its definition is by telling you what it's not. Okay? It's not harshness. In the first century, it was a highly prized social virtue. And it is the opposite of brusqueness or sudden anger. It was used of a judge in the first century 
to explain that he had the authority to be lenient first before laying down the law with toughness. It's having the ability to act with force, but restraining oneself from doing so. Often defined today as power under control. The reality is that a passionate soldier is first meek, so he or she is not a distraction to the overall mission at hand, which is the protection and the progress of the gospel. And this was a virtue certainly owned by our Savior, wasn't it? Remember, I urge you, I'm calling you alongside to partner with me and partnering with Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate soldier of God. And he was certainly gentle and meek, meek and gentle. One author said the meekness to which Paul appeals is that exemplified in the life and ministry of Christ. His meekness was not a condescending softness by which the demands of God's law were lowered. He showered meekness when he dealt gently and compassionately with sinners but without in any way minimizing their sin. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. I think this is the most popular, probably, like a, I say, familiar passage to uh, many of you that have known your Bibles for a while. It's a text that we use often here. He speaks of the unrepenting cities in verses 20 to 24. And in the face of unbelief, he says this in verse 28. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And I'm the only person in world history that can offer you rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, verse 30, and my burden is light. As you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you not only cross-reference Matthew eleven twenty-nine here next to that phrase, but you can also cross-reference 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And after you cross-reference that, you can turn over to those verses with me, and let's read those together. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What's this example? Obviously, this is Paul encouraging them to follow his example as he's following Christ's example. Who committed no sin, speaking of Christ, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Could have, right? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is a spiritual warfare, isn't it? And Christ won the war. 
For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your, what? Your bodies. No, your souls. <laughs> Jesus changes the way you live when you truly come to know him. One of the primary ways in which we live as we contend for what's right is with meekness. Power under control. The word gentleness is also used here. And as the first century here would have heard it, this would have been a word that was just meant reasonable or suitable. When applied to leaders, it denoted fairness and kindness. In our context, it's part of what, and I, I'm only going to use this word because you're not signing today. I would have, I have, I have cross-reference notes of what actually to say if you were signing. For those of you who are grammarians and love English, this is a hendiades. It's the use of two words joined by and that express the same idea. Remember, this is the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is saying, follow me if I'm following Christ. If I'm not, don't. Christ came born in a manger of humble means and circumstance to fight a war against sin's global influence. He lived his life in humble determination to serve and not be served, and he gave his life a ransom for all of us. And for all the sinners of the world, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 tells us, Jesus was criticized in doing so for being weak, for being a wimp, for laying down his life for sin instead of setting up a kingdom for himself and for his people. But this is what passion underpinned with meekness and gentleness does. It's driven to live before others with the character of Christ first. Paul knows there's no protection of the church without first having a right disposition. Are you with me? It's a lot of collateral and necessary damage done when you walk into a room pointing your gun or with your boxing gloves on. If it comes to a fight too fast, a lot of innocent people die. Paul says, nope. That's why you often hear me say, listen, only follow a believer at Grace Church of Mentor if they're not ornery. Right? <laughs> only follow someone's example if they're not mean. Right? For too long of some of our Christian histories, we've been following the example of just mean people who said the right thing. But there's a disposition that comes along with the position. Paul's going to make that very clear here by the end of next week and for the rest of this third section of this letter. So God's soldier is first wisely passionate. And they are secondly principled. And this is what we're finished this morning. 
they're principled. Let's look at the last part of verse 1 through verse 3. I who am weak when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He says here, I who am meek when I'm face to face with you, talking about his first two visits, but bold with you when absent. He's talking about the need to write that first letter that's unrecorded in scripture that started to address the ills of the church and the second letter, which is 1 Corinthians in our Bibles, that severely addressed the ills of the church and the influence of unbelief there in Corinth. When I'm with you face to face, I'm meek, but if when I'm away from you, things start to fall apart, it's okay that I'm bold then. It's okay when really the truth content of the gospel and the progress of the gospel is at stake. I, I'm going to step up. I'm going to write you a letter for our weapons of warfare are, 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 are written and inspired and preserved truth. It's doctrine. And we're going to see how your hearts respond to the doctrine. It is okay for meekness and gentleness to confront accusation. And really that's what Paul's doing here. His religious enemies did the same thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees did to our Savior. His religious enemies are trying to convince the Corinthians by saying Paul is a wimp and he's a deceiver. He's a milk toast. He's got no backbone. See how soft he's been when he's been in your presence. And look how mean he is when he's gone. Boy, it's awful easy for someone to be mean when they're not there to take a punch. Right? Unbelief is saying to the Corinthian believer, can't you see this guy's deception? This is what real leadership does. But Paul confronts the accusation saying that the gospel was first presented without him being in the forefront. But Christ, cross-reference here, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, which we're not going to go back and read this morning because we've done that three times since we've started studying this letter. This is Paul's explanation of his first entrance to the Corinthian church. And he said, I did not come with enticing words of man's wisdom. I did not come to you with eloquence of human origin. He said, but I came to you in the spirit and power of God, preaching nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came in with the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he himself is meek and gentle. So God's servant doesn't come into the room with boxing gloves on. And I think that's a good reminder to all of you believers who are passionate about reaching people who need Christ with the gospel. Learn from the life of Jesus himself and then from the Apostle Paul how to go about engaging and interfacing with people who need Jesus. Jesus. 
than Christians for way too long, or people who call themselves Christians who may not be that are part of religions, have, have defaced a proper disposition of gospel presentation by their own poor disposition. No Christian comes into a conversation with an unbeliever with their boxing gloves on or with their gun pointed. That's not how you go about building redemptive relationships. So therefore, there's many people in the world who are still responsible for the gospel they heard, but they're pointing a finger saying, if that's what Christianity is all about, no thank you, please. But yet we're still principled and we're going there. Paul says here, I'll be bold. The word bold here literally means to stand in the face of danger. He says here, if it's necessary, but that's going to be a last resort. He still doesn't see the immediate need to do so at this point while being away as he has in the past because they've responded well to his first and second letter. So again, he's willing to stand in the face of danger of unbelief. He's just asking the Corinthians to keep doing what they're doing by way of obedience until he arrives for his third, third visit. And by the way, most historians say it's two and a half to three months from their reception of this letter until he comes and he gives them another right? 70 to 90 days to let this digest. To give them the opportunity to partner with them before he gets there in contending against unbelief in this way. He goes on to say, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Paul knows the believer should only show force, so to speak, with spiritual weaponry when necessary. Withhold force at all costs. When the gospel and its content are truly at risk, then certainly will immediately address the enemy with solid doctrine to their face for the protection of the innocent. But for now, the church should maintenance herself unto unity by confronting the unbelief on their own. As a body, I think this is really good stuff here. I actually wrote that in my transcript. <laughs> it's what we call good ecclesiology. The local church should be equipped among her members to be aware of the enemies of the gospel. And then with passion, with urging, along with meekness and gentleness and principle, address the unbelief. We've had our own contemporary enemies of the gospel we've needed to address in our real time in the past 18 months. And you've all done so very well at varying levels. We've all been confronted with the ills of the extremes of the false gospels of Christian nationalism and Christian wokeness. We've all been face to face with being forced to clarify what our exclusive identity is in Christ while we strive to maintenance unity produced by the Spirit around this gospel message. And may I add, you have done a really good job at this. 
The enemies of the gospel are at best distractions to gospel content and they're distractions to the content. We only know they're distractions to the content when they distract away from the mission of the content of the gospel of Christ. Mark that down. The devil has no problem with us owning right gospel content. No problem with that at all. When you put hands and feet to that gospel content in the form of mission, game on. Thousands of churches are closing their doors that have great gospel content in their doctrinal statements. Thousands of them. But they're making no gospel progress. Satan wins. We can sit and intellectualize all day long about gospel content. And you can do so until you fall asleep. You can dream about gospel content while you sleep. And you can walk up engaging in the debate of gospel content again. And you can do so for decades and never have been a personal witness for yourself and seeing someone else come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and mentoring then. Satan wins. That's why I'm qualifying through this whole letter. It's not just about the intellectual property of the gospel content. It's about progress. And human ideologies distract from that progress as they seek progress of their own. Are you with me? No Christian should ever involve themselves with a reality of an ideology that distracts them away from Christian gospel mission? None. You say, well, all these things, there's all these virtual, virtuous things. We got to do this. We got to do it. We got to do this. We got to do it. Don't forget, Pastor Tim, we got, no, huh? No, not at the expense of gospel progress. Tell me what you're passionate about. I'll listen all day long. Tell me why you stand where you stand on a particular issue. I'll listen all day long. I'll do so without scoffing. I'll do so without maligning. I'll just love you. And then I'm going to sit there as your pastor and I'm just going to discern. So how distracted are they really? All of us have been tempted to the false gospels of Christian nationalism or Christian wokeness in the last 18 months. And I know that because we've talked. And it's hard for you to even bring up a name of a person you've prayed for that you would have gospel influence in their life for gospel progress sake. Satan wins. The saddest reality in all the world today is not that America is ceasing to be America. Right? The saddest reality in the world today is, is not a lack of social justice. The saddest reality in the world today is that people are dying without Christ today. <laughs> That's the saddest reality. Be distracted under that. That's what Paul's doing here. The church has no future without a mission. And at a church like Grace Church of Men or Doctrine, yeah, it's easy. 
We're going to guard that body of doctors with our lives. Right? That's like Fort Knox protected. Immovable. Steel. Backbone. I'm going anywhere in my doctrine. Don't touch it. But the gospel wasn't meant to be put in a safe or in a vault. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. And if you're not, you're probably distracted. By something in your thinking that might be virtuous, but certainly not gospel. Because we have no gospel if we have no personal progress in building spiritually redemptive relationships in our realities, in our natural rhythms of life. Satan loves to put the church in a chokehold and force them against one another and away from unified mission. And the church, with military-like compassion and principle, needs to confront whatever ideology distracts them from the why of their existence. And Paul says here, which I purpose to be courageous with some. The word courageous here means to dare. It literally means, in our context, I dare you. <laughs> but he says, I'm really hoping not to have to do that with anyone at Corinth. I'm hoping you guys take care of that. I'm hoping the disposition of Christ wins the day. And I'm hoping when I get there, we just can just make progress together. But if there's still one who raises their ugly, hoary head of no wisdom and cries out against gospel and mission, believe you me, I'll draw the line in the sand and I will dare them. <laughs> I will dare them to talk down my Jesus. I will dare them to dissuade me from missional direction. And they will be confronted sternly. Because this is not my church. It's Christ's church. His will be done. And only his will be done. But again, that's last resort. We don't have to do that here, praise God. I know there's seeds of unbelief among us. I don't live under a rock. But overall, you're doing a wonderful job shepherding each other in God's word unto mission. And that's become the protective reality of Grace Church of Mentor. And praise God for that. It increased more and more. But for the Apostle Paul, he says, I really don't want to do this. But I will. He calls the Corinthian people to do the same. We're never to be too meek and gentle at the expense of principle. And we're never to be principled without beginning with meekness and gentleness. He finishes this second virtue of being principled by stating who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. 
You know, always beware of anybody that first critically talks about another believer when that believer's not around. Always beware of that person. I'm going to say it again. Always beware of any Christian who seeks to talk negatively about another Christian when that Christian's not present. Always know that the vice lies with the tongue of that person, not the person who's present. Always know that. What's Paul saying here? The unbelieving people are indicting him as being a worldly person. That's what he says. Who is the unbelievers in the congregation? Regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. As a matter of fact, he uses a Greek word here, walked, which is really a word that teaches a disciplined lifestyle. They're saying, hey, this guy, Paul, he's not only a wimp, right? He's not only meek and mealy mouth when he's with you, and really bold when he's away from you. He's a worldly guy. He has etched out his daily, monthly, annual calendar to live a worldly lifestyle. That's what the grammar's saying. This guy's no good. Always know, friends, that unbelief will seek to twist the reality of the life of true, passionate, principled belief. Paul is saying here, beware the critic. You see, unbelief in the Corinthian flock accused Paul really of living an unbelieving lifestyle. True believers maintain the best they can, the right disposition and the right conviction. We've seen that in this letter, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Paul has highlighted this balance throughout this whole letter for the whole flock. Disposition, position, disposition, position, position, disposition. Hang on to it. We don't need to come to you again showing you our reference papers in our back pocket like these unbelievers are who are trying to get you to listen to their ideology, to follow them because all they want to be is be influencers, not missional people. They just want to be influencers. Not missional. They're going to show you all of their resumes, all of their degrees, all the books they're reading, right? Right? They're going to try to distract you away from mission. And they're going to say, if you don't do this, you're an unintellectual, worldly person. If you don't know what I know, then you must be in the world and of the world. It's a weird twist that unbelief does. But they found traction in Corinth. They found traction in Crete. They found traction in the house churches that the Apostle John wrote to. They can find traction in any church. But Paul says, just hang in there. (laughs) Don't ever make meekness and gentleness expendable because of your principle. Don't ever let your conviction make meekness and gentleness expendable. Next week, we'll consider the final two virtues of spirit-filled soldiers of faith. But do you remember 
the businessman, former military that was on that flight from the East Coast to Denver that we talked about at the beginning of our sermon who stepped up and showed compassion with good principle to get those citizens of that city safely home. Do you remember that guy? Well, again, that's what Paul's seeking to do here with the Corinthians. Rallying them to the right thing and making sure they're safely on their journey to the right destination. And in order to do that, you've got to be passionate and you've got to be principled. And next week, we'll learn about proficiency and preparedness together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the clarity of this text. I thank you for these sweet saints at Grace Church of Mentor, Lord, who, who really are not only known among themselves, but really known in our community more and more for their meekness and gentleness. Lord, may our meekness and gentleness be those virtues by which people are attracted to us and then to our Savior. May they be so much of a reality in our lives that as we seek to love people and encourage people in our community, they actually get to the point because they know us so well where they ask us why we're different and then we can just give an answer. It's not me, it's my Jesus. And he met the needs of my soul that was in a lot of trouble because of its sin and I just know his peace and his joy and I'm glad Jesus entered my life as a gentleman who was principled certainly Lord we pray that this reality would be our reality continually among us and I really believe it is thank you for your patience with us thank you for growing us thank you for allowing us to grow each other by your word and now Lord take us on with this reality into mission continually in Jesus name we pray amen